it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. If you're listening to Investing for Beginners, then you probably care about money and learning how to make a good relationship with your finances. Everyone's Talking Money is hosted by money wellness expert and certified financial planner, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money. Hear about the money topics you need to know, such as ways to train your brain to reach money goals, why you should ditch your budget and start tracking your cash, and everything you need to know about paying off student loans. Simple steps to start investing as a side hustle, ways to invest in rental real estate, how to overcome money trauma, and so much more. With over 900 episodes, there's a show for any and every money question you have. I'm a big fan of Shauna's as well. She has a relatable style and soothing voice that takes some of the stress surrounding money. Shauna really speaks to the listener and never ends in an episode without actionable tips. I recently listened to the episode, Stop Stressing Over Your Money, a simple budgeting solution, where she talks about her simple, easy one, two, three system for budgeting. It helped me a lot. Are you ready to learn everything about money that no one has taught you? Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today we have episode 246. We have four, count them, four great listener questions that we're going to answer today. So without any further ado, I will go ahead and dive in and we'll start with the first one. So this is from our friend Stash. We answered a question from him a little while ago and he wrote us in asking us for a further clarification. So here we go. So hi, guys. On my way to work this morning, I was surprised to hear you read the last question I sent to you. I honestly didn't expect a response. Hearing it really made me appreciate the service that you are doing and trust your intentions and teachings that you provide. I wanted to follow up because I wasn't clear enough about my 401k. I had said that I had a 10% match. My company handles its 401k a little differently than most that I've heard of. It's not a public company. The 10% I am speaking of is my company's match 10% of what I put in. So if I put in $200 a week, they put in 20 I was wondering if this clarification changes your thoughts on my previous question. If it was 100% match up to 10%, I agree with what you said. But since it's a little different, I was wondering if you could take another look. You guys are awesome. Again, thank for what you do, Stash. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts on Stash's follow-up question to an earlier question that we answered, which I thought was really good? I would still stick to the same advice because 10% is 10% and it's 
really, really hard to beat the market by 10%. So if you can get 10% right off the bat and then just put it in an index fund or something, that's going to be a lot better than anything that probably most people can do. I would agree with that too. If you're, unless you are the next Warren Buffett, I think you know taking that 10% that the company is giving you, again, it's free money and you don't have to do anything for that 10% other than work there for them. And they're going to give you 10% back, which is, it's a great feature. And it also continues to help build your wealth over a longer period of time. That 200 bucks a week that you're putting in is going to compound. And if you're putting it in, let's just say an S&P 500 index, it's going to compound at 10% a year for the next 50 years. That's great. And that extra 20 bucks a week is going to add to that pile and that snowball that Andrew's talked about in the past. So by all means, I would continue to do what you're doing, Stash. It's awesome. And it's a great way to continue to invest. Yep, I agree. So the next question. Hi, I've been a subscriber since earlier this year. I am 51 years old. I have a 401k and four rental properties. Otherwise, I'm debt-free. I have been following the portfolio purchases and picked up extra from the list you have. Very happy. My question is, with prices dropping, is now a good time to buy extras if the stock prices are dropping below my original cost? I have about an extra $2,000 a month I am allocating. So that is a fantastic question, especially with everything that is going on in the markets lately. We have seen a pretty drastic drawdown across the board. And there's the phrase, you know, that you can always tell who's been swimming naked when the tide goes out. You can also see that the tide will raise all boats. It also will lower all boats. And so right now, the thing that I guess I have personally been focusing on is looking at my portfolio. And when I reinvest or invest, I've noticed that instead of looking for newer names, I'm re-looking at the companies that I already own and assessing whether that is the best opportunity other than going out and trying to find other names. So I'd be curious. I know you're going through this exact scenario. So maybe we could talk through that a little bit. I totally am. So in my monthly newsletter, the Sather Research e-leather, we have a sell order that we are doing. And I guess it is a spoiler alert, but by the time this goes live, subscribers will have already seen it. But we are going to be selling a company called Store Capital because it was just announced that they were going to be acquired. So rather than wait for that to happen, the price is pretty close to what the end deal is going to be. We're going to take that and allocate it. So I have an extra... So if this real money portfolio does $150 a month. So each month, $150 is going in. This is going to be an extra $750. So about $900 to allocate, which is more than I usually do per month, obviously. So I am going through the same thought process. And I struggle a little bit because that famous phrase we like to use, it depends. Because of the way the market has been lately, and like you said, and like this listener said, the prices have been dropping a lot. It makes me look at the portfolio and see that there's a lot of good quality names that have dropped that are it's going to be a good time to add into. And so it really depends if you're listening to this two, three years down in the future, maybe that market is so elevated where... There's no way at all you'd ever find three or four quality names to put money into because everything's so expensive. And so I've dealt with that in the past too, where I just basically rolled in the extra money into whatever the position was at that time. And that served me very well at that time. But I don't see myself doing that now because there are super high quality names in the portfolio now that are good to allocate. So I wish I had like a 
all-encompassing universal answer for what do you do when you have extra to allocate each month. I would say it probably depends on what companies are down. Why are they down? And kind of taking it on a, on a case-by-case basis. So for example, with the market we've seen, interest rates have gone higher, which pushes... That lowers the tide. That makes all boats go lower because interest rates, when they go up, stock valuations go down. And so that's one factor to keep in mind. The other factor is why is your particular stock that you're looking at going down? Is it because something has fundamentally changed with the business? Are things worse for them because of some outside factor? Or are they down because all boats are down? So those are the questions I would ask if I was trying to decide whether am I going to put these into the best companies in my portfolio or am I going to allocate it all into one or somewhere in the middle. And so that's what makes it hard when you're following the newsletter is you don't always get all those answers and everybody has a different financial situation. But when you're invested, you have skin in the game. You can start to pick up some good insight and I hope to provide that through the newsletter. And you do. These are all questions that people are going to have, especially if we continue down the path of a bear market. And depending on who you talk to, the NASDAQ and the S&P are unquestionably in a bear market. And the Dow is flirting with it and has been flirting with it for a while. And so it's kind of hard to decide exactly where to go. I guess the thing that I've been thinking a lot about is I pay attention to earnings and I pay attention to earnings calls and reports and whatnot, not necessarily for long-term view of the company, but just to make sure that the engine is still humming. And perfect case in point is Berkshire Hathaway. So it's recently, it had gotten close to my cost basis. And so if it had dropped below that, I would have been like, you know, my fingers together super like, hey, I'm going to buy more of this. Because when I look at the earnings and how the company is performing financially, it's still doing a great job. It's still doing everything it's supposed to do. It's just that the market is down and everything is kind of going down with it. But it doesn't mean that the value of Berkshire is less than it was yesterday. It's probably worth more because it continues to grow its earnings, its cash flows, its revenues, the value of the business continues to go up, even though Mr. Market is saying, yeah, it's not as worth as much now. That's the, I guess, the psychotic nature of somebody like Mr. Market is that they're going to be up and down every single day, but the business performance is still humming right along. And I guess that's the, the depends part of investing is you have to kind of take it case by case and look at the individual companies that you have and decide which of these are the best businesses. And do I want to give them more money to continue to allocate that they can use to reinvest and grow their business? And if they are and they can and they've done a good job in the past, and I believe they will, then for me, it's kind of an easy decision. But sometimes some of the companies you may not be sure of, and then it becomes a little more challenging. But there's nothing wrong with putting more money to work for great CEOs at great businesses because over a long period of time, they're going to give you you know great returns in return. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. 
Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. If anything, the best ones will allocate more capital when things are down. And so that gap between how good they are versus the average only grows as they're taking advantage of a tough economy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm blanking on where I read this, but I read somewhere recently that one of the super investors was talking, it might have been Seth Carmen. He said that he looks at companies that lean into hard times like this because those are the companies when you come out of a recession or a dark time are going to be the ones that are going to thrive in those times. So if they're reinvesting, if they're hiring more people, they're allocating more capitals instead of cutting things, that's generally a really good sign because that means they're building the business. And on the other side of a bad time is a good time. And that's when that company will really thrive during those periods. A very long-term approach. Mm. Yes. All right. So let's move on to the third question. So podcasts in progress start to finish currently in the 80s for episodes. And number as of today, I'm an e-letter subscriber. Goal is to teach my kids what I wish I knew at 20 and give a head start. Amen, brother. Uh, Heard your assessments of TRN, Train, and GBX in past episodes Funny coincidence, I've been in the rail repair and logistics industry now for five to six years, and I recently received consulting requests. I took them thinking that these people are trying to enter the niche part of the industry, the part of the industry that I dabble in, and might offer a job. Instead, they're seeking a pulse on the industry as a whole. I believe for management of portfolios through a confidential interaction. Interesting timing uh, with finding your podcast. I agree with your sentiment. Keep emotion out of the purchases and the balance sheet and intrinsic value should drive purchases. 
Do you feel this research is an important component of protecting against loss? Necessary outside monitoring quarterly statements. Or where do you look? Steve. All right. So this is a really interesting question. And this is something that we've actually talked a little bit about in the past between ourselves. So I'm curious to get your take that we can share with everybody. There are services out there. From my understanding, institutional investors will tend to use them, whereas more average everyday investors won't typically comes with a high price tag. And basically, a lot of them are trying to do that where they're trying to get the pulse of the industry. So it's basically like they interview you to get a pulse of the industry. And then you kind of, not that you're sharing anything that's that not should be hidden, out. but like, yeah, it, it's like almost like your locker room talk about the industry. And it's a great way to, like you said, get a pulse for the industry. So the question that Steve's asking here is, is a service like that a necessary part of being an investor where, you know, should I be almost immersing myself in the industry in order to make good investments? That's kind of how I interpreted the question. Yeah, me too. And I think you can do it that way. I just say that the people that I have modeled my approach after, from what I understand, they don't necessarily do that. And if they do do it, it's not, the all-encompassing reason behind a decision. Like if I think of somebody like Warren Buffett, he might have people in certain industries that he can maybe communicate with to learn about an industry. But when it comes to, am I going to buy Apple or not? I don't believe that he does that based off something he heard from some engineer in the industry. I think he does that because he looks at the financial statements and the numbers make sense to him. And then he has like a big picture reason why he invests in Apple. And to be very specific about that is he's very public with everything he does and is very much a teacher about where his mindset is. So when he talks about why did he buy Apple, he says when he was in a Dairy Queen, I think it was, and he was with his two grandchildren and he saw that they were just heads down in the phones. He understood this isn't a technology, this is... Is like a part of people's lives. And that's what flipped the switch for him to look at Apple's financials. And instead of thinking, well, these are great financials, but maybe they won't last for 10 years. He looks at it like my grandkids, this is essential for them. So he looks, if it's essential for them, it's going to be essential for him as an investment for the next 10 years. So you kind of take a little bit of both. But to me, I don't see him as necessarily relying on it and necessarily needing it. And so for me personally, I also feel the same way. And I think for most investors, any of that kind of scuttlebutt can always help, but I don't think it's necessary. And in certain situations, it could become somewhat of a crutch where you rely a little bit too much on emotions and not so much on the numbers. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. And I love the Warren Buffett bring in to this and kind of how he looks at investing and whatnot, because that's really what Andrew and I have really kind of based our whole approach on is how, you know, Warren and Charlie approach looking at investing and these services that have become more popular over, certainly over the last year or two, they do provide a benefit to people and they can be helpful. Uh, The, I guess the bigger question is it can become a bit of a crutch and it can also, I found that it can be a little bit of a confirming bias in some cases, because if you're reading about company A and 
they have four or five analysts that are talking or insiders that are talking about those particular industries or company per se. If they work for the company or work for the company, then they are going to be more bullish about those companies and they're not necessarily going to talk about the downsides of those businesses. So I found myself when I would read some of those that I would be taking on a more, I guess, bullish approach and it felt more like I was confirming what I already thought about the company. And in some cases that's okay, but it could be dangerous. And that's why if you are using something, you got to have to balance it out, figure out a way to counteract those potential bias. The other thing that, I mean, it's definitely the Phil Fisher scuttlebutt method of investing, and it definitely takes a big swipe at the the qualitative part of investing. And that is important, but you can also get access to that in other ways. You can do that by, for example, looking at Glassdoor and seeing how the reviews of the company, the reviews of the CEO, and that's a free resource. It's something you can glassdoor.com and you can just see what people are saying about Tim Cook at Apple and get a sense that way of the company culture without having to dive into all the nitty gritty of those kinds of things. The other thing that I worried about too for me was that it could take away from me learning about the business itself, that I get so focused on what all these people are saying about the business that it would detract from trying to learn the quantitative part of the business, the actual business fundamentals, what drives their revenues, their costs, their pricing structure, their capital allocation, all these things that are important too. I felt like it could and was drawing me away from that. And so I felt like it could become too much of a crutch and I would put too much emphasis on three or four other people's opinions on the business as opposed to my opinion or Andrew's opinion. Those things I felt like would be detracting. Are they a bad thing? No, I don't think they're a bad thing. And can they be helpful? Absolutely. But I think you have to kind of take it in measure if you are using something like that, to take it in measure with what you're reading and kind of have a balance to it. Otherwise, it could become a dangerous crutch for you. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. And another investor, the kind of model that I think of is Peter Lynch. And he actually talked about how he does, when he was running money full time, he did do this whole scuttlebutt approach. I mean, he was meeting people, three, four, five people a day. But he did mention that he would talk to competitors. And that basically, if he was interested in a company and he was talking to that management, it was basically useless because, like you said, everything that goes into somebody feeling good about their own company, feeling good about themselves, confirmation bias, but how he got a lot of good ideas from talking to competitors saying, hey, who do you think is the best in this industry? They have no ball in that court, right? So they can speak freely. So that's one way to think about it. Like Dave said, I think it could very easily become a crutch and something you would have to fight against, which is why sounds like you've decided not to use a service like that. Mm -hmm. I've also decided as well, but not to say it can't be helpful for certain types of investors. Yep, exactly. And those are all great points. And I guess if this is something that you think is going to be useful to your investing process, you know, don't let Andrew and I talk you out of it. Just try to think of it as how can I take these ideas and balance what I'm trying to do and not get overly reliant on one source of information versus another? And if you're not in a position financially 
to afford some of these services because the ones that I'm familiar with are not cheap. And so just for average everyday investors that are wanting to do it themselves, it may not be in their situation to be able to do this. There are other free ways to do these kinds of things. For example, if you're looking at retail stores or grocery stores, you can easily just go to the store and observe what people are buying, you know, stand there for 10 minutes and just watch people and just see, you know, maybe not creepily, but, <laughs> but just observe, you know, things that are going on. And you could even go talk to some people, just walk up to them and ask them, you know, how was your experience at the store? Or go ask employees what they think of working at the store. You know, do you enjoy working here? I mean, that's all you got to do is just walk in and ask them, hey, how's it working here? And they'll tell you. And those are little things that you can use to kind of help you make assessments on your own. So you can also read reviews online. You can look at other websites like Seeking Alpha and get a pulse on the bearish and the bullish cases for companies because there's going to be people who are going to write about Apple and be super excited about it and other ones that are going to be super down on it. And so you can kind of get a sense for the both sides of the story and then you can decide what you think is you know more likely. So those are just, I guess, some other ways to approach this kind of you know information gathering that could help you make a decision. Those are great. All right. So let's move on to the last question. So here we go. When using relative valuations, multiples. Should we consider using adjusted multiples? Example, PE ratio can be influenced by WAC and interest rates. Additionally, price to free cash flow, should we adjust this to include SBC, which it stands for stock-based compensation, or does Mr. Market not care? So Andrew, I'll let you take the first volley here. Okay. So relative valuations, what does that mean? That's metrics like the price to earnings ratio, price to sales, price to book value. These are very simple heuristics for comparing one company to another. So I could take two companies in different industries and I can say, look, all the companies in this industry are at a PE of 20. All the companies in this industry are at a PE of 25. The higher PE are more valued by Mr. Market. So that's probably a higher growth industry or an industry with higher quality types of businesses. Those are the kinds of things you can do with a relative valuation. And then you can compare, obviously, inside of that industry. Hey, Mr. Market tends to like this company more than that company because you can look at their PE or their price to sales and say, wow, a lot more investors are in this stock versus that stock, probably because they're the leader or they're the best at what they do. So I say all that because that's kind of the extent that I use relative valuations and also as a screening tool. So like if you're doing a DCF, which is how you value a company, we've talked about that several times. I think it was IFB 241 or 240 where we said, how do you value a company? You can look at, that's how to do it. If a stock has a price to free cash flow of 50 or a PE of 50, something crazy like that, I don't care how I adjust the numbers, it's not going to be close to its intrinsic value. So I can automatically exclude a company like that. And so that's where the relative valuation comes in handy because you can take a very numerical approach and exclude a lot of companies that you already know based on what you're comfortable paying that these are going to be too expensive for me. And then from there, you use it to work in the next step of your research. And so I would not adjust these necessarily because if you're using it in the way I'm talking about as a screening tool, then it doesn't matter if, you know, if interest rates are at like 12 and the average PE is at like 15, 
then maybe that cutoff is like PE of, just to throw as an example, PE of 20. Anything above a PE of 20, I'm not. But then if interest rates were at 2% and the average price to earnings of the market was 30, then maybe your cutoff is more like a 35. So the thing about interest rates and the WAC, which is weighted average cost of capital, that kind of gets baked in if you're using relative valuations in the same way, which is to compare companies with each other. So I would try to look at it that way. And I would use that as an opportunity to say, like, if you're reading an old investing book that was written in 1990, and they're saying, hey, every price to earnings below this is a good stock, keep that in the context of the interest rates at the time. So that's where maybe adjusting it can be useful. But if you're using it to compare companies with the market, I wouldn't necessarily adjust it because they're kind of all being subject to those same factors. The idea of relative valuation or multiples for me is something that I generally try to use as a screening process. When I'm valuing a company, I'm always trying to look for the intrinsic value, which the only way that I can find it is by using a DCF. And so that's what I prefer to use. I understand where they're coming from with this question. And I guess there's two things I want to throw out there. So number one, if you're going to consider adjusting multiples, you have to do it for everything. You can't just do it for one company and not another. Because if you do that for Apple and you don't do that for Microsoft, you're basically confirming to yourself that this one's better than the other. And that's not an apples to apples comparison. The idea behind relative valuation or using multiples is to compare them to others in their industry. And you also, if you adjust it for Apple, but you don't adjust it for Wells Fargo, again, you're doing yourself a disservice because if you're going to do it, you have to adjust it across the board and you have to be consistent with whatever it is that you're doing. And I guess with the price to free cash flow, that kind of goes back to the whole question of do you include stock-based compensation in your calculation for free cash flow or not? And if you do, then you have to, you know, you don't have to account for it, but you just have to be consistent for it. And likewise, if you do remove stock-based compensation from your free cash flow calculations, then you have to do that across the board. And if you do something like that across the board and you look at some of the companies that issue a lot of stock-based compensation to pay their employees, you're going to be very, very disappointed with the multiples you're going to come back with because you're going to discover quite quickly that the majority of their free cash flow comes from the stock-based compensation. And so it's they're not the business is not at the point where it's generating a lot, if any, free cash flow at that point. And so you can kind of take that into consideration. I guess the other thing that I want to throw out there is Michael Mobison, who is one of our heroes, our finance heroes, he writes a lot and he's a very, very smart individual. And he's been leading the charge or part of the charge recently to, I guess, not necessarily adjust, but rearrange the financial statements. And some of his ideas kind of filter into what this person is asking, because one of the things that he's talked a lot about is the costs of business now when the accounting rules were written in the late 80s, early 90s and haven't been changed. The way businesses operate now are vastly different than they were at that time period. And so he feels like, and a lot of other people in the same industry feel likewise, that the accounting statements don't necessarily correlate with the business results that you're seeing. 
And really, a lot of that really comes down to intangible assets, which in a lot of cases are things that you pay for, but you can't necessarily see or see a benefit from immediately. So perfect example is expenses. If you look at expenses on the income statement, you see that those include things like R&D, for example, just to single out one specific item. R&D can encompass a lot of different stuff. And in most cases, when you pay for R&D, you don't see the results of that for many, many, many years. But accounting rules require that you expense that out of the business as if they've gained the benefit from that money that they spent. Perfect case in point would be Facebook. Facebook is spending a lot of money on the whole meta idea, like billions on the whole meta idea. And a lot of that is going through R&D. And so they're trying to build something. But their meta is not going to see, or Facebook is not going to see the results of that for five or 10 years from now. And so the accounting rules kind of punish this company because of the way that they're set up. And so Mobison has been leading the charge to readjust the way that you handle an item like R&D. And maybe it increases the earnings on the income statement, but it reduces the invested capital or the assets that the business has. And so it offsets financially. When you look at the numbers, you may see a higher earnings ratio, but you may see a lower return on invested capital because they have more assets and lower income. So it just, it kind of offsets each other. I think it's a beautiful thing. And it's, uh, I think he's right on the money with what he's trying to do. And I'm just hoping that sometime, you know, before I retire, accounting officials will change their tune on this. But I think when you're thinking about something like this, kind of stick to what Andrew was saying, you know, use multiples as a way of screening and make sure you're consistent with what you're trying to do with the multiples. And I think that will take care of all the questions that you kind of have about multiples. I would say, I mean, basically the whole adjustments thing with Mobison, he's talking about adjusting for basically kind of for a DCF in a way, if you're using like ROIC to drive your valuation, for example. Right. In that case, it probably makes sense to use your own adjustments. But if it's a relative valuation multiple like PE or price to free cash flow, you're saying don't go through that. Yeah, and I would say the same thing. Like, I don't adjust stock based compensation if I'm looking at a price to free cash flow when I was, as I'm screening companies. But when I'm doing the in depth DCF, how much is the stock worth? Then I'm definitely adjusting for stock based compensation and I'm keeping that consistent with every stock I analyze. So, yeah, I would agree with that kind of idea. Yeah, that's perfect. Is there anything else we wanted to kind of touch on with this? I will add on this last thing too, is there are a small percentage of companies where you do use relative valuation. So as an example, banks, price to book is used a lot more than, like you can't do a DCF on a bank per se, you have to use a different kind of model. And you can argue that super certain super cyclicals, like a steel company where the earnings are just all over the place, you could argue that you would maybe want to look at price to book instead of where earnings or free cash flows are. But we're talking about those are probably in the vast minority of cases. So don't take it as a blanket statement. There could be use for relative valuations outside of what we've just talked about. But as a general rule, 80-90% of the time, 100% on the adjustments and the relative valuations. I agree. Well said. I have nothing else to add. Okay. 
last name. All right. I'll go ahead and take us out then. All right. So here we go. All right. Well, with that, we will go ahead and wrap up our conversation for today. I want to thank everybody for sending us those fantastic questions. This was a lot of fun. You guys keep sending us great stuff and we love trying to answer them on the air for you. So we did talk about some technical things. We talked about some different ratios and terminology that may or may not be familiar to you. Please check out our website, einvestingforbeginners.com. We have this huge search bar at the top that has all kinds of answers inside that for you. So if you're curious about relative valuation or multiples or price to book or price to earnings, anything of that nature, you will find lots of information there to help you learn more about investing. And so einvestingforbeginners.com. With that, I will go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply 